Welcome to the Hydric and Struggles Leadership Podcast. Hydric is the premier global provider of senior level executive search and leadership consulting services. Diversity and inclusion, leading through tumultuous times, and building thriving teams and organizations are among the core issues we talk with leaders about every day, including in our podcasts. Thank you for joining the conversation. Hi, I'm Sam Berman, a partner in Hydric and Struggles' London office and the global managing partner of our artificial intelligence, crypto and digital assets, cybersecurity, health tech and industrial tech specialty practices. In today's podcast, I'm excited to speak to Arun Narayanan, former Chief Data Officer at Anglo-American. Headquartered in London, Anglo-American is a leading global mining company that uses the latest technologies to discover new resources to mine, process, move and market future enabling products to customers. Arun was responsible for leading Anglo-American's digital transformation by building their data analytics platform, Voxel, the vision of operational excellence in mining. Prior to Anglo-American, he was Vice President Data and Analytics at Schlumberger Software. Arun, welcome and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start off with a, a question around your journey in, in the industry. Um, would love to hear a bit more about how you got to your role as Chief Data Officer of Anglo-American, why you took the role, especially given the mining industry isn't necessarily known for being technologically progressive. Maybe let's start with um, philosophically, it kind of makes sense to start in industries where there's a lot of need for digital transformation, right? If you if you think about what is the biggest bang for the buck or the type of impact that can be had, it can happen in industries that need these digital tools. So maybe that's one reason why I would have joined the mining industry. But how did I get started? It's, it's a very typical journey at the beginning, at least, Sam. I did a degree in computer science, got to the US to pursue my master's, and got a little bit involved in um, data visualization and data analysis. Shlambaji approached me for a job to start to look at innovative ways of looking at oil and gas seismic data. Seismic data is very hard to visualize, and at, even though I did not know it at that time, the key problem that Shlambaji was trying to solve was a collaboration problem. One person understanding something is interesting, but the whole department and the whole company has to collectively agree that the hydrocarbon resources are present and that they can be then further extracted. And that was a problem that I was asked to solve. It was very interesting. I was a software developer for a long time. But more and more over time, I started getting involved with the business problem and trying to make the customer happy. One big issue or one big area of need in the software space is the translation of the technology into the business problem space. And techies love to build the technology and talk about it with all their three-letter acronyms. And sometimes it doesn't really make sense for the customer. As I started getting involved in that journey, I figured out two things. One, that I was quite good at it. And two, there was a way in which more innovation could be brought to the table because I kind of understood both sides of the equation, so to speak. I really understood what problems the customers were trying to solve. And I really already had an innate understanding of the capabilities of the technology. So I became what would be called a product manager. One thing led to another. We ended up building a few innovative products. A couple of them uh, were quite commercially successful. I got a patent for one of them. And eventually I ended up running um, Shlambaji's digital program at large. 
and we ended up building the oil and gas industry's first cloud-based platform that allowed for that kind of analysis. Right at that time, I got into a discussion with uh, Anglo-American. It's ironic, Sam, you set up that mm -hmm. conversation to happen. And uh, Tony O'Neill and I hit it off, and from there, uh, the partnership with Anglo-American began. The mining industry uh, could benefit from these kinds of tools. They, they have a lot of software technology already, but what I was proposing to build and what we did end up building is a way of looking at it a little bit together. The integration and the collaboration pieces is what came to life. And I remember casting my mind back sort of six years ago when we had the initial conversations about the opportunity to Anglo-American. The role was very much um, a facilitator to help drive the digital transformation agenda uh, that Tony was looking to drive. And the chief data officer role was at the time much more geared around the data and analytics side of the value prop versus AI. When did AI become part of the role? Um, and would love to hear some examples, practical examples, of how you applied both data and AI to solve problems within Anglo and then what net new success that led to. Yeah, I, I love this question, Sam, because I think um, it really is the nub of where all these digital roles sit. AI is a tool, it's a fantastic tool, and other analysis uh, are possible. So I think the main point for me is what type of technology or what type of solution you bring to the problem at hand. And some problems are begging for a solution like AI, and some other problems, other solutions are more apt. So maybe, maybe we started the role and tried to understand what would make the biggest impact, what was the kind of investments Anglo-American was trying to make. And from that, a program began to emerge. And in uh, the way I like to run the program, we, prevent, we provided optionality to the leaders. And we said there is, a, let's say, a small, medium, large version of the program that they could pick from. And they picked, let's say, a medium version of the program, and that's where we started. But it, at this point, we're talking about solving business problems. We are not championing the fact that we're going to use AI or we are not going to use AI. And we really needed to make sure, I feel that's the signature part of the role that I've done, we really need to make sure that the business problems that were being solved were relevant. That we could solve them, if we solve them they would be able to be used and the usage would cause a positive business impact. That was the first round of the debate. Now, when that, when that debate settled, uh, some solutions were very simple. You could build dashboards and present information to people. People are thirsty to just understand what's going on. And they are intelligent and capable of doing the further analysis from that point onwards themselves. Maybe the analysis is not very complicated, or even if it is, they are capable of doing it themselves. You could say that's one type of solution. The other type of solution which we found a lot of success with is let's say first principles based solutions which means if you know two or three variables in an equation you can figure out the answer or if you can't then at least you can build let's say what we call a digital twin and exercise the digital twin to understand what are the options over there that worked out very well for us one of our products that we built around operational planning uses the power of cloud computing and simulation to figure out what are the options for, let's say, a general manager on how to run their mine on a daily basis. And it's interesting because it forces a lot of uh, 
questions for them to answer now. If I had one less truck, will I pollute less? And will I also produce less or will I almost be able to produce the same original target? And you can begin to see that these kinds of questions now allow for sustainability outcomes to come to life. The energy intensity and water intensity can be reduced. It's possible to say that half the water can be consumed and let's say 80% of our targets can be met. Not that they would do that, but they understand the trade-off points much more elegantly before any work has happened. So that's one type of answer. This is a simulation-based answer. Now coming to the nub of your question around AI. Yes, there are many solutions for which there isn't a computational answer. And in these cases, the world has been without an answer till the evolution of technologies like AI. And what AI does is it allows us to estimate an answer, not very precisely, but at least close enough that good decisions can be made. So one example over here is understanding the subsurface and understanding the definition of the ore body. This is work that's done by geologists, it's laborious, and it's a lot of pattern matching work. So when it's pattern matching work, um, it lends itself to being automated by an artificially intelligent algorithm. And that's what we did. And it was a dramatic, dramatic reduction in time that happened when a solution like that was built. Now, the geologist is still important. They're important to build the solution. They're important to run the solution. And let's say senior geologists are even more important because they have to accept the solution that the program has produced. But it's also possible to say, if you're being fair, that the number of geologists that are totally involved in the program in the future will be perhaps fewer than where we were today because some of their work is getting automated, right? And this is the double-edged sword that you get from digitization and automation. The level of the work increases, but perhaps the number of people that are needed shrinks. So maybe that's the answer to your question, Sam, as to how we started off with a little bit of AI in our mind, but really pivoted the program to business impact and then pick the correct technology solution to solve the business impact problems. And what I found interesting about when we were talking about this recently is that like all organizations and leaders in your position, there is a combination of how much do you buy, how much do you build, how much do you partner. And Voxel, which I mentioned at the uh, top of the conversation, is a software platform that I believe you built internally would love to hear a bit more about how you navigated the path of buy, build, and partner, because that's a really important topic, I think, for people to, to understand how to approach that. So Voxel, it has a couple of expansions. The one that you mentioned earlier, which is the vision of operational excellence, is definitely one way to expand that. For me, it's the mining industry's first end-to-end -end digital transformation platform. And it's a bit, you could say, it's a bit optimal in many ways. It is a bit of a build. Anglo has built it. And it's a bit of a buy. There are components in it. And it's a bit of partners. There are partnerships in it. Now, let's start with how it looks, right? Because at the end of the day, when you're trying to get the mining industry to use complicated computer science-based software, it has to have an elegant experience. And all of the capabilities that Voxel supports they have a consistent look and feel, and they have the look and feel of the Anglo-American brand and the Voxel flavors. Right? So from an end-user standpoint, it looks like one thing, and it looks like Anglo-American has built it. So let's park that. 
Now behind the scenes, there are intelligent components that the industry has built that would not make sense for us to go out there and rewrite. So those are the pieces that we would end up buying. We try to put these in an embedded manner, which means they run behind the scenes, they take the problem and then they answer the question back. But the visual experience is still the voxel experience. So that's one other way in which we can do it. And then let's talk about partnerships because we are not going to go reinvent something like a cloud platform again. So Voxel runs on Microsoft Azure and we have very competent and effective partnerships with companies like Microsoft. So we have used that as well to leverage that. And yes, there is a, a mix of, let's say, general awareness and competency in the marketplace from a variety of consulting and software development houses that we've used to further accelerate the speed at which we've built. But we've really taken an, an, a look at what is differentiated IP, and that's what we have sat down and written in our offices. We have looked at what is capable from the industry and already available, and we have embedded that. And we have sort of tried to hold on to a single visual experience so that the end users are not switching between different experiences. And that's how we managed to, to build that. And I'd say from the totality of the vision, about 30 to 40% of the platform is already built out as of this point. Let's talk about leadership capabilities then, because we've been talking about the technical side uh, of AI and data, but this is the soft side, which is equally uh, as important. As we both know, when you're driving a digital transformation, there needs to be significant sponsorship within the organization beyond the individual and their team who are executing. And you need followership as well in to get a, a successful transformation like AI. What leadership capabilities have been most important to you, Arun, in developing both of those? And what challenges have you had to overcome? The whole program is underpinned by that sponsorship element. We got some of it out of the box because the leaders in Anglo-American trusted and wanted to use digital technologies to reimagine mining to improve people's life, which is the purpose of the company itself. And they saw a pathway to get there. So some of it was there at the get-go, but other sponsorship had to be earned. You could say the shortest version of your answer would be relationship and trust and building all of that step-by-step, step, slowly, one person at a time. Um, executive leaders could be could be convinced about the, the future of digital, and there were many conversations that were had around that. You could argue that everybody has a slightly different lens. Some of them wanted to know the impact, some of them want to know the rate at which investment happens, and um, others wanted to sort of see how it would work for someone else before they would adopt it. So you had the whole gamut of experiences, but the relationships had to be worked at least at the executive level. Now, looking at the technical partnerships, I think the technical partnerships are quite critical because the computer science departments that we have are not aware of the domain knowledge. We do not have subject matter expertise. We really don't understand geology or metallurgy. So we had to partner very closely with those departments to bring those skills into the team. And for us to do that, again, the relationships had to be built, programs of work had to be defined, milestones had to be set, and we had to make sure that we were tracking and progressing through those milestones, building trust, building the relationship one at a time. And maybe last but not least, the same sort of, you use the word followership, the same concept had to be executed at the end user level to make sure that 
there was excitement in the community that where we were going to deploy this into, that they were wanting this and that they were ready for it. And maybe there were a couple of couple of tools that we used. One obviously would be just the standard communication and relationship building. But the other thing that we did, which was very unique, was we ran a digital literacy program that allowed them to step into it without being fearful, that allowed them to learn about all these technologies without thinking that, hey, this is going to come and take my job away. Because their own improved skills allowed them to apply for or get higher level digital jobs still in their space, but move one or two notches higher up in their pay grade because they're skilled both digitally and in their original domain as well. The digital literacy program was received quite well. Seven, seven eight thousand people went through the basic training. Um, two or three people went through such an advanced level of the nano degrees that we provided that effectively they had come over from their old departments and, and were almost working in the data analytics team at that point. Sticking with the theme of people then, let's talk about your team. Yep. Because whilst you were uh, the head of the, the team, obviously you had to rely heavily uh, on partnering with team members with all sorts of different skill sets. So my question is around, how do you go about building a high performance team in this world uh, when the talent is, uh, should we say, more nascent or more scarce than perhaps other areas of the IT ecosystem? Yeah, it's my full-time job. I love my team and I want to think my team loves me back too. And it was... Um, it took, a, it took a lot of effort to build that, and you could say that the way I approached my job was almost towards the fact that if I built the right kind of team, the program would succeed. So that was really the main focus of my management style and my management focus. Some of the concepts for me, one is collaboration. The team had to be one. There couldn't be split uh, let's say, not necessarily backstabbing, but even divergence of opinions after a certain point. It's okay for people to have different viewpoints, but come together, let's agree as a team we're doing A, B, and C, and let's agree we are not doing the rest. Then after that, we all have to be on the same page. And it took uh, a while for us to get through the standard norming, forming stages of the team sort of life cycle to get to the performing stage. The other... The other aspect for me, especially when you look at the data analytics team in Anglo-American, it's not an established team. We don't have established processes. We are sort of choosing new things to do. You almost argue we are like a startup inside of a large company. It creates a dual cultural basis. And what's really needed is people need to solve the problems that are at hand. So we came up with... Uh, concepts called an I-shaped person and a T-shaped person. Have you heard of yes. that before? So I-shaped people are people who are very capable or skilled in one thing and they typically don't care about what else is happening. And we were looking for people in the beginning who were T-shaped, who had an idea of everything and then brought their own knowledge in one part of that value chain. But over time, I've progressed my thinking from T-shaped people, and you can argue my current team right now is V-shaped people, where they have deep expertise in one area and decent knowledge of the adjacent area and less knowledge but still in the adjacency space. And because of their ability to play in the adjacencies, it's possible for them to take care of problems that their department may create in the adjacent space and think through the impact on other people. And as they do that, the team becomes more 
robust and the team becomes more cohesive. And you could say that was the basis of how the team was built. Of course, we did look for really good talent. The organization was very supportive in us getting such high quality talent. But in my mind, having the cohesive nature is really what helped the team be a high performing team. What is the significance of getting the culture right when it comes to driving a digital transformation like the one you've been driving at Anglo-American? Yeah, it's very important, Sam, because at one level, we don't know what we're doing. We're trying experiments. So for me, culture is responsible for making sure that the experiments succeed. Right? At one level, you should say that the culture is a culture of a little bit of humility to understand what is the problem that we need to solve. If computer scientists are going to define the problem, it's possible they've picked a problem that's not relevant to the business. So how do you talk to the business? How do you have the humility to go talk to people and say, hey, I'm, I, can, I can do these things, but what is a relevant problem that we could solve for you? I think that's one part of the culture. I think the other part of the culture is fear of failure and risk-taking. We, we don't know if these things are going to work. Even if you did all the Q&A at the beginning, we may not have all the data or the data may not be convergent enough to provide a relevant answer. So I think there needs to be some confidence that we're going to try a few experiments and some are going to fail and some are going to work and that is okay. So I would say these are maybe the two broadest pieces of the culture that we have installed in the team. And we did get a lot of support from management to have that kind of culture where we were going to fail, but fail fast and move fast quickly through the life cycle of projects. We've talked therefore about leadership, sponsorship, high performing teams, and now culture. You've been living and breathing this sort of challenge of transformation over the last five and a half, six years. What's your advice to, to leaders who are currently wrestling with what their approach should be right now to both digital transformation and then the sharp end of AI? I think the first, first step would be to sort of understand that they have to embrace innovation at the top. It's risky and it's not necessarily going to work. So people who are able to provide the innovation need a mandate. So that's to start from the top by saying, I want to put this team together. I want you all to try these things. This is the scope. This is the budget. This is the time. And sort of give some boundaries and give some framing for them to be able to proceed with their work. The, the other thing is to understand if the executives have thought through what will happen if the innovation works. Because it's one thing to say we try to do something and we solved it. Is that just going to be a science project that you can check off, that you have a patent on or you're able to talk to in a conference? Or have you as a leader really thought through new ways of working that are underpinned by the availability of these digital technologies? And if you haven't thought about the new ways of working and you're not able to be bold enough to make those decisions, I think that's where you should start because that doesn't involve the technologists. That involves the board. That involves the, the executive leadership team and understanding if they can answer questions like, are we okay for remote work to happen? What is the degree of automation that this industry will take? Are we okay for decisions to be made on a piece of glass thousands of miles away? Are we losing out because we can't tap into the expert who is sitting in the other side of the planet? And if you have thought through new ways of working and you're able to sponsor innovation departments, well, I think you've gotten started. After that, it's a simpler journey, right? I think you need to find talent, give them the space to try out the experiments, provide them active and engaged 
feedback on what they're doing and then I think you're on the way to, to move forward. One thing that I learned at Anglo-American that I didn't know when I started the job was the democratization of things. So we democratized data, people could go look up what they wanted to look up on dashboards, that was very empowering. And we also democratized AI. And what I mean by that is rather than saying these are like 12 clever people that, that we have hired and they are the only people who are going to be doing anything to do with machine learning or artificial intelligence, we actually found an AI sort of uh, toolkit, like a canvas where people can pull data in, ask different questions and quickly build, let's say, basic models that are quite intelligent. And anybody could do it. We, we deployed the license to people who did some of the early digital literacy work and that allowed them to become sort of citizen data scientists by themselves. So that then fosters a culture of innovation everywhere in your organization. So if you're a leader trying to say, I want to change the fabric of my company, that's how I would approach it. I think it's a really great point that um, basically what we're saying there is AI is so much more than the technology itself. It's everything around people, culture, it's transformations, it's different ways of working. Um, so really interesting answer. Much of the mood music around AI at the moment, in my opinion, unfortunately, is quite negative. Um, I'm very much an optimist uh, on the application of AI. But where do you land in terms of this next frontier and its impact on organizations and talent? Yeah, we're looking at a little bit of, you could say, at the scary end of AI with generative AI being in the news. And there are some people who are using it for obviously practical and good reasons, but other people, especially high school students, using it to avoid homework. And the image-based generative AI tools are being used to produce completely unethical and random images. So yes, it's a little bit weird, but I have a slightly different take on it. I feel that at the end of the day, these are just tools and tools can be used for anything. First of all, the technology landscape itself will keep evolving. You're, you're seeing already emerging technologies appear around the bend that are beyond the generative AI tools, like the Vision Pro announcement from Apple. So that's gonna promise, just like you have people walking around with AirPods in London, people wearing these ski glasses and walking around cities, right? So technology changes will keep happening all the time they will manage to fall in line to practical industrial uses, right? That's what people like me do. That's what every company has a department like that to tame it and bring it in line so that it, it, solves, it solves real problems. You know, the, the commonly used example would be to think about you had a calculation department like 50, 60 years ago where you send them some math questions and then come back and tell you what the answer was. And then a calculator showed up and that kind of technology did not, shut down accounting, but it just allowed accounting to move one level up in the hierarchy, right? So you're able to do more what-if scenarios to understand should you borrow more money, should you borrow less money, how can I run another project or how can I do something else? Because the calculator lets you progress with the math much more quickly. And I think th this is the bend that'll happen with the current generation of AI tools. As it is, we are already seeing technologies like ChatGPT being offered in a more safe manner by Microsoft. So you can plan to run it inside your company firewall with just your company context without having unauthorized uses or without having the data leaking into the public general knowledge pool. So I think people need to also understand there are terms and conditions that come with some of these technologies. And as you sort of evolve, 
it will all stabilize. So I'm more optimistic on this, on this front, Sam, compared to you. My favorite uh, anecdote is that with every technological revolution that has occurred, there's been more jobs that have come as a result of that versus less jobs. So my final question, Arun, is keeping in mind what we've just spoke about, what are the leadership implications that come with these developments in AI and data, and how can leaders adapt for this in the future? I think people have to be brave, that they have to understand things will change, and they have to understand that they have to tap into it by leaning into that space. Um, I think it starts with some of the points that we spoke about, like, are you sure you know what problem you want to solve? Do you have the funding? Are you willing to go that far with the commitment to making it happen? Without that, I think everything will wobble in your team. Let's say you're firm in your mind, you have a well-defined problem space and you have a well-funded sort of team. I think from there onwards it goes as to how you give confidence to the team, how you ask them to not be bound to one technology but to look at blockchain or to look at the ability to solve problems using just standard compute or AI or some of the new generative AI tools, whatever is the right technology to solve the problems. And then a little bit around who is going to use it and how will it work? Like, did you think about the new ways of working? Are people confident they're literate in these technologies? And as they're literate and confident, are you able to keep track and measure hey, we were supposed to have this kind of impact a year later, are we having that kind of impact? And it's a feedback loop. If technology A, B or solution A and B are working, let's double down on that. And if something else is not appropriate for the industry or it's a really hard problem to solve and cannot be solved, time to put your energy on some of the next frontiers of things. But it's a, it's a dramatically exciting space. Sam. When you look at video analytics and you look at the ability to do generative AI and you're trying to understand how such a lot of acceleration of work can happen because of pattern matching, these kinds of technologies are just begging to be used in industrial use cases to reduce waste and to reimagine how these industries work. It's absolutely a fascinating moment in time and uh, exciting journey ahead, I hope. So Arun, thank you for joining us today. Uh, for sharing your story, your insight, and your advice to our listeners. Thank you very much, Sam. It's always a pleasure to see you. Thanks for listening to the Hydrogen Struggles Leadership Podcast. To make sure you don't miss more future shaping ideas and conversations, please subscribe to our channel on the podcast app. And if you're listening via LinkedIn, Twitter, or YouTube, why not share this with your connections? Until next time.